Welcome to The Bazaar. I can't tell you how great podcasting is. I get to sit in pajamas and speak to the air about stuff that really keeps me up at night. You know, I used to do this without the whole podcasting thing, but that's called talking to yourself. And when you do that in public, people don't take kindly to it. Hello, I am Alicia, or today the hungover version of Alicia. It's like her alter ego that's more tired and voice is a little more raspy, and she just wants to nap all the time and never leave her apartment. Yeah. That's hungover Alicia. She's a fun host, though. She doesn't have her shit together as much as, like, regular Alicia, so we'll see how this goes. Pull up a chair, get cozy, enjoy a coffee, or maybe a cocktail. I don't know. Do what you do best. You could be listening to this in the car, on the couch, at the gym, or maybe setting the mood on a romantic date. There's nothing like setting the mood with some true crime. Or maybe that's just a me thing. Probably just a me thing. For today's episode, we are going to cover a Canadian unsolved murder. Explicit content that some listeners may find upsetting will be covered. Topics in today's episode will include violence against children, murder, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Information for today's episode comes from the CBC Archives and the Toronto Police Archives. This case is actually still active, so if you or anybody you know has any information about Christine Jessup, please call 416-808-7400 or email homicide at torontopolice.on.ca. Let's play a little game. Can you guess how many cold cases are currently unsolved in Canada? I'll pause so you can take a guess. Okay, you've got your number? Cool. There are over 3,000 cases that remained unsolved in Canada, and that number, even with all the DNA and technology that we have today, continues to go up. There's a large portion of our population that remain vulnerable. Children, single women, sex workers, indigenous women, and people who live in lower-income areas. Through my research for this episode, I took a deep dive into cold case statistics here in Canada. It was super depressing to see that most of the victims of unsolved murder cases are women. No matter what way you slice it, it sucks. Like, women today face a reality of feeling unsafe and unwelcome in their own environments. I know we've all felt like that. The case that we'll be covering today is the unsolved murder of Christine Jessup. Here are the facts. On the morning of October 3rd in 1984, Christine Jessup boarded the school bus for the 1.2-kilometer drive to her school. That day, it was normal. Christine loved school. She was a good student who was always eager to learn something new. That day, her teacher distributed recorders for the students for them to all take home. I'm talking like, you know those wooden recorders? Man, I remember I totally slayed hot cross buns like it was my day job. Her parents weren't home from work yet. She was alone. Her mother Janet and her brother Kenny were at the dentist and they weren't going to be back until after 4 p.m. Christine was told to go to the family home and stay there until they got back. Instead, Christine went to meet her friend Leslie Chipman. The two friends decided they would meet at the park that day after school. At 4 p.m., Leslie showed up to the park as planned. But Christine never did. When her friend never showed up, Leslie called Christine's house. Every call she made was unanswered. Meanwhile, when the Jessups got back, they were met with an eerie sight. They found Christine's bike blocking the entrance of the driveway. In an interview, Kenny remembers that that bike was Christine's favorite. She would ride it everywhere. She loved it, and she would never leave it discarded in the middle of their driveway. 
What we know now is that between 3.30 and 4 p.m. in the afternoon, Christine was last seen at a variety store close to her house. The owner of that store said that she came in alone, bought some bubblegum, and left right after. Other people on the street that afternoon, on a typical day, in a nice neighborhood, remembered seeing her. The Jessops lived in Queensville, Ontario. It was a family like anybody else's in a nice neighborhood. Back then in the 80s, from what my parents would tell me, it wasn't abnormal to let your kids walk around and go and do things by themselves. Kids back then were a lot more autonomous than they are now. Like I know nowadays my mom would never let me go off on my own or even if people saw me off on my own at a convenience store, they would the first thing they would say was, where are your parents? Where are you going? Like, who are you with? And the fact that this let off no red flags for anybody to see a kid walking around by herself lets us know how normal of a situation this was back then. Nobody was thinking about child abduction, child kidnapping, or child murders. I just realized I said child abduction and child kidnappings. I feel like that's redundant because they're one and the same thing. If there's an expert out there that can prove to me they're not, please do. Otherwise, I'm just going to leave it. Okay. Multiple searches for Christine were conducted. Days turned into weeks, and people continued to search for this little girl all over. The searches continued all the way through November and December of 1984, with police, friends, and family looking tirelessly for their little girl. Christine's body was found on New Year's Eve. She was found in the Durham region, over 50 kilometers east of her home and near the town of Sutherland, Ontario. Christine was described as bubbly, small, responsible, and smart. She was a happy girl who loved spending time outside with her friends. Her body was found in a field with signs indicating sexual assault. Cold cases of anybody bother me a lot, um, aside from the obvious fact that it's still unsolved. It's just so sad to see that it was just this little kid who had their entire life ahead of them. And now is just like gone because of some monster out there. Because of the violent nature of the case, it didn't take long for it to make headlines. People wanted answers. They were scared and angry, understandably so. Not only did the safety of this one girl get compromised, but the safety of everybody and everybody's children felt compromised as well. There was someone out there who was getting away with doing something horrible to a little girl. Safe to say there was a lot of pressure building pressure amongst the Jessup family who couldn't sleep, thinking that that monster was still out there. There was also pressure in the town and pressure amongst the police to find who was responsible. I keep thinking everything was like a pressure cooker at this time. The Durham detectives put their sights on one theory, a theory that to them seemed solid enough, but had nothing but circumstantial evidence at best. Before we get into this theory, Let me preface that I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. It's either Guy or Guy. I'm going to go with Guy because I'm thinking French-Canadian, but also Durham. So I'm not sure. Bear with me on this. Local authorities theorized that the Jessup's neighbor, Guy Paul Moran, was responsible for Christine's murder and assault. Moran, 23, was described as a bit of a social outcast by other neighbors in the area. He lived with his mother and father and worked at a local furniture store. He played the saxophone and clarinet in a local band and enjoyed beekeeping. All in all, seems like a pretty chill guy to me. Moran didn't fit into this neighborhood, though, because of his social awkwardness and quote-unquote weird behavior. He was ostracized by the rest of his neighbors. 
He had little contact with other people. He was usually either at work, playing his music with his band, or staying at home with his parents. He didn't drink. He didn't go out partying. A key point here, he also didn't have a criminal record. But the detectives at the time thought that he fit the profile of a child killer simply because he was a recluse. However, Moran had one thing they overlooked. He had an alibi. On October 3rd of 1984, he was at his work at the time of the alleged abduction. His time card confirmed that he left work at 3.30pm. He then stopped at Upper Canada Mall in Newmarket on the way, where he purchased a lottery ticket from the InfoPlace Ticket Center. After that, he bought groceries at the Dominion store. He drove north on Leslie Street, arriving home between 5 and 5.30 p.m. His brother-in-law was leaving as he entered the house. They spoke briefly. His parents and his sister were at home and saw him go into his room around 6.30 p.m. The rest of the night, he was with his dad making floodlights. The authorities argue that his alibi was fake, but ultimately was disproven by several individuals who reported that they saw him, as he'd said. Unless Marin had an evil twin or something, it's impossible for him to be picking up Christine around 4 o'clock and be in Newmarket at the same time. Frustratingly, this alibi wouldn't stop him from being arrested and going to trial for the kidnapping and murder of Christine Jessup. The first trial took place in January of 1986. The prosecution's theory was that Marin snapped for some unknown reason. He had some big psychological crisis, raped and murdered Christine, and then took her body away to dispose of the evidence. A representative from Ontario's Center of Forensic Sciences testified that the red fibers found in Marin's car came from a sweater worn by Christine. When I say fibers, I'm talking tiny, minimal strands of material that could have been from anything. Paired with these fibers, the police received a tip from a unknown inmate about Marin when he was in custody. So, let's do a little roundup. All the police have are the following. A creepy vibe that the neighbors got from Marin, who was a social introvert. A loose character-based theory, when Marin has no history of rage or anger problems. Two strands of red wool from an alleged sweater, which could have been fibers off of anything else in his car. And an anonymous inmate who heard Marin brag about killing Christine in jail. To me, all of this evidence is circumstantial and frankly not enough to actually nail down an image of him being this disgusting villain, like the prosecution were trying to paint him to be. On February 7th, he was acquitted by the jury. You know, one would think that this would have turned the police in a different direction, maybe explore some different options. Maybe the killer was someone they didn't know, maybe a sex offender in the area, or something else altogether. But the chase of Marin didn't stop there. Fun fact, in Canada, the prosecution can appeal for a new trial, even if the accused is acquitted. And that's what they did. The prosecution came back even stronger than ever and won. On July 23, 1992, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. What happened to him in prison was nothing short of a nightmare. He was abused and raped as a child killer. His only saving grace was the development of forensic DNA testing on semen. This kind of technology was unavailable during the first two trials. His DNA was finally tested and didn't match the DNA found on Christine's body. 
This ultimately proved his innocence, and on January 23rd of 1995, he became a free man. They actually did an investigation, and it revealed that at the time, the prosecution withheld and ignored evidence, as well as contaminated fiber sample evidence. The jailhouse informant was actually coached by the prosecutors, and for testifying, his sentences were cut short. There's a lot of resentment that followed this. I don't want to sit here and shit on the police, because a case like this is hard enough to handle. It's sensitive and heartbreaking. But I wonder, with all of this focus on him as a suspect, did the police let the real killer slip through their fingers? As of now, all we have is the DNA profile of the person the police believe committed the crimes. I'm not an expert. I've told you guys that I'm not an expert several times. I'm just someone who reads a lot of true crime and a bunch of other stuff and is super interested in this area. Condemn me if you want, but this is what I seem to think. Based on other cases I've looked at, it's really common for violent offenders to move frequently from one area to the next. They don't really stay in one place, especially to commit their crimes. That being said, I don't think the perpetrator for this murder was someone who lived in the area. I think it was someone who was traveling through, deliberately searching for prey. I think that the offender we're looking for is someone who travels quite a bit for their job or just for the sake of getting their fix and murder. Historically speaking, it's easier for a serial killer to kill out of their province, which means that we're looking for someone who could probably be from a neighboring province or neighboring city, but not close enough to be picked out as a local. He or she could have been someone just driving through that neighborhood, saw Christine on her bike, and pegged her for easy prey. It's terrifying to think about, but it's true. I feel like at that time, everybody was so focused on this narrow scope of looking in Christine's neighborhood. Perhaps if we widen that scope a bit, we could look and try and discover a way to find this individual. I don't know if it's through criminal profiling or if it's through DNA evidence. Now what we have to do is wait for a match for the person who did this to Christine, and hopefully we can bring them to justice. Recently, in a lot of cases, there has been the use of DNA evidence. So to give a kind of long story short of what's been going on, people have been submitting their DNA to DNA databases like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, that sort of thing. And police are actually using this DNA evidence to compare to their database of unsolved crimes. That's how the Golden State Killer was actually caught. And that's how several other serial killers have been caught because... On a fluke, someone who was related to them submitted their DNA to this public database, and from that public database, the police extracted their DNA and found a match to an unsolved crime. Until something like that happens, we're left with a lot of questions unanswered. If you or anybody you know has any information about Christine or this case, please contact homicide at torontopolice.on.ca to do your part. As for now, this episode of The Bazaar is closed. Thank you for listening, and be sure to give us a five-star review wherever you listen. Like I said, I really want to keep making this podcast for you, and hopefully we can establish a large audience to keep this going. You can find The Bazaar on Facebook at The Bazaar Pod. Look for the same logo that you see here. You can also find The Bazaar on Instagram at The Bazaar Pod as well. 
I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it can be discouraging to cover unsolved cases that can be close to home like this one, but it's also really important that we keep Christine's memory alive and find her justice. And with that, I say to you, peace out, nerds. <laughs>